This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Journey of Unity number 13. To join our WhatsApp group, tinyurl.com forward slash Rabbi Epstein. So tonight's class is based on the Pasuk that goes as follows. The Pasuk says, Marvadim Asas Allah, Sheish Viargaman Lubusha. Okay, Marvadim Asas Allah, Sheish Viargaman Lubusha. What does that mean? So Marvadim refers to linens that are Eshashchayel, or in our duality over here, the Ishchayel. Marvadim, they make themselves linen. And Rashi and others talk about how these are very, very nice linens. The person is very into their, their bedding, their bed sheets. They make beautiful linen. And it's a shvach, it's a praise that this person does it. Marvadim Allah. And also, Sheish Viargaman Lavusha. And she also wears fine linens and purple wool or clothing, like very, very nice clothing. Okay, so there's two parts of this. One is Marvadim Allah. She makes herself very nice bedding. She goes to Ben Barber uh, linen, and she's very mocked that she has nice linen. And also, Sheish Viargaman Lavusha. And she also, um, she also wears very nice clothing. Sponsorships are available for, you know, linen companies. <laughs> we should do that in the future. Um, so, okay. So what is this shvach? What is this like great praise of this of this person? So we always said that, you know, if you look through Asia's Kyle, you find that in the beginning, we spoke a lot about business. And over here, we're starting to talk a lot more about clothing. And we're going to talk a lot more about clothing as time goes on. But I would argue that the idea of clothing we're going to use sort of as a um, metaphorical example, okay, to bring out three very important points that I want to highlight tonight. So the first idea is Marvadim. This woman is very into her bedding, right? Why? Why is she so into her bedding? Why is that a good thing that she's so into her bedding? So Mepharshim say that this idea of bedding is a, is a metaphor for somebody who's very makbid, they're very careful on things that happen behind the scenes, so this woman, this Ashes Chayel, or this Ishchayel, this great, amazing husband or wife, they're not just focused on the external recognition that they get from other people. They're, they're very mockbid on the things that nobody knows, nobody seems to care about, maybe nobody compliments, they don't even like pay attention to it. You know, for anybody who's like married, you know, I don't know how many husbands came home were like, wow, we got new linen. You know, it's probably the last thing on the planet that, that anybody ever recognizes. But nevertheless, he, she's very mockery. She's very careful. She makes sure she has beautiful, nice linen. And, and that's a shvach. That's a praise for her because she's not just focused on the fundamental or the functional aspects of her home. She's, she's focused on the things that are behind the scenes that almost nobody knows about. They don't recognize it. She's not doing it for the praise. She's not doing it for any of that. She's doing it simply because it's the right thing. So she's putting in the effort behind the scenes to make sure that even though nobody will notice, even though my husband's not even going to notice, my children are certainly not going to notice, nobody's going to notice. Nevertheless, at the same time, I'm going to do it. Why? Because it's like the flower on top. It's the thing that even though nobody recognizes it, that's why I'm going to do it. I met somebody recently who who told me that he was in the Marine Corps for six years. And he said to get to the Marine Corps, he had to be at a certain physical, you know, level to be able to do the pull-ups and the push-ups and the running. And he said that they take you 
amazingly, they take you from a bare basic that you're able to just get into the entry level, like you're able to run a couple of miles and do one or two pull-ups, like nothing major, to be able to literally run like 14 miles a day with, I think he said a 40-pound sack on your back. You're running 14 miles on these long hikes, uphill, downhill, mountainous terrain and in crazy weather. And besides the shooting and, and medicine, you have to literally go through so much mentally and also physically the way that you challenge yourself in the Marine Corps. And then ultimately, obviously, you go out and, you know, you become a Marine, which is fighting and killing people. But he told me that it was very interesting that for him, when he was younger, he was a trouble teen who really struggled a lot. And he said that when he got to the Marine Corps, they told him that besides for all the things that you're going to have to do here, you're going to have to pass all these tests. They call them PT tests, like all the physical training tests. Besides all the things you're going to have to do, and let's say shooting, you have to be able to attain a certain level of marksmanship. Everything that we do here, there's a certain standard. He said what, what shocked him the most, that was the hardest for him, was they told him that every day we come around and we check your bunk and we check your bed. And if your bunk and your bed are not perfect, what the Marine calls perfect, which is like a 20, it's like 20 steps to making your bed perfectly and you fail. It's, it's almost the same thing as failing from that. You can't shoot a gun or that you can't, you can't run. You can't do pull-ups. You can't do push-ups. So I said, well, like, what's Like, why is that? He said, because the, the way that the Marine Corps looks at you is that if you're a success behind the scenes, you're a success in front of the scenes. If you're a failure, Behind the scenes, that means that in life, you're a failure. If you cannot perform when nobody's looking, if you cannot do the things that are right simply because they are right, then the chances are that you are not going to be successful when everything goes crazy in battle. So they're crazy mock, but he said he had to drill it into himself. Usually you get up, you, you go to school, you go to work. He said, no, you get up, you make your bed. You don't just make your bed. There's not a crease in the bed. And he said a lot of times they would come in, they would check his bed. They would look at the bed where he considered it perfect. They would rip the bed to pieces. They would like pull it apart like they were murdering somebody. They would pull it apart and rip it and throw his stuff across the room. This is how you make a bed. And he said he had to like train his brain. Like they really demand perfection, but not perfection just because we know we want you to be perfect. Perfection because perfection behind the scenes means that you deal with your life more perfectly. That is the shvach, I believe, of this Aisha's Kyle. She is not just careful on the things that everybody sees, that everybody knows, that everybody talks about. Even her husband or her children, that's not her focus. Her focus is I'm doing what's right because it's right. I'm not just going to make sure that like in front, you know, like when I make a party, everything else is very nice. But in, behind the scenes, my counters are disgusting. You open the, 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 the drawers and there's, there, it's, it's gross. No, everything in my life, even the things that nobody sees, even the things that nobody sees. I'm not in this for the recognition. I'm in this because it's simply, it's right. And when a person does that, then they have an innate success within their relationship. So that's step number one. The person focuses a lot. This is a lot in Adam La'atzma. It's between a person and themselves. Simply saying to themselves, what do I need to do in my life that is correct? It's right. Whether or not somebody recognizes it or not. I find this idea very interesting because I sit with a lot of couples. And what I usually hear from couples are, my husband or my wife didn't recognize this. They didn't, they didn't pat me on the back. They didn't compliment me enough. They didn't spend enough time with me. They're always, they're, they're, they're blaming the fact that their needs weren't met on the fact that they're no longer performing as a spouse. This idea is put that on the side. 
You perform as a spouse because it's the right thing to do. You perform as a mother because it's the right thing to do. Nobody's going to pat you on the back when you get up at three o'clock in the morning. Of course, your spouse is supposed to, of course. But even if they don't, the right thing to do is to do the right thing. And that's the idea behind this. A person is making sure, no matter what's going on in their life, their family is not just functioning, but there's a flower on top. These are nice bed sheets. She didn't just make bed sheets, she made nice bed sheets because she was very, very careful that, that even though nobody sees it, I know that I have nice bed sheets. I know that my bed looks, looks nice. I know that my bed is made. Nobody knows, but I know. And because I know, I did it right. Why? Because that's how you do things. You do things right. That's number one. Second idea is this idea that she wears sheish v'yar gaman. Sheish v'yar gaman levusha. So I would argue that this is probably more talking on the public scene. She now steps out into the world, okay? And the Mepharshim say that she wears nice clothing. She wears clean clothing, clothing that are fitted. Sheish v'yar gaman also, if you look, is, is like royalty. Like she wears like royal clothing. So obviously it depends on the person. You know, you don't walk, you don't walk around in like a, you know, the king's costume. You, you wear whatever's befitting to you. But Sheish v'yar gaman is, is royalty. She dresses in a way that she carries herself. So this idea over here, I think highlights something which we've touched on in the past, but I think that there's a beauty as to why it, it, it matches it up with this Pasuk. So there's an interesting idea, something which my Rebbe, Rebbe Berkowitz, talks about a lot. And I think that it's really the basis for so much understanding of tznias, which is like a word that nobody wants to hear about, but like the idea of tznias, covering your hair. But the idea of tznias, if you really think about it, is an internal midah. It's nothing to do with clothing, right? That a person is supposed to walk with sneas. What does that mean? It means you walk around with Hashem with your elbows covered? No, that's not what it means, right? There's a certain, there's a certain way of carrying yourself. That's the idea of sneas. So Rebergutz talks about this idea, an idea that we call nechbadas. And the idea of nechbadas is a life-changing idea. An idea that I, I heard this from Rebergutz maybe five or six times. And I've discussed this with my wife maybe five or six hundred times. How this idea translates into actual real-life living. So what is this idea? The idea goes as follows, okay? The Shulchan Aruch says that when a person gets up in the morning, a person should get dressed underneath the blankets, right? We're all familiar with this halacha. We've heard this before, right? Nobody does this, but that's what it says, right? And don't say, I'm in my own house. So nobody sees me anyways. What's the big deal? No, the Shulchan Aruch says, don't do that. Why? Because Hashem fills up the whole world and because Hashem fills up the whole world, the person should get dressed underneath the blankets where it seems like Hashem doesn't see you. But that's like pretty funny because Hashem obviously does see you. So what is this halacha? And nobody seems to keep this halacha anyways. So to, to make a very long story short, there's a concept. And the concept is simply that a person has to hold themselves to shivisi Hashem l'negi samir. I'm living with Hashem. And when a person lives with Hashem, you do what's appropriate for every single circumstance in the highest level that's appropriate for that circumstance. That means that a person showers, they don't wear a tuxedo. A person showers the way they shower. A person goes, goes swimming, they wear a bathing suit, a proper bathing suit. A person's getting up in the morning, they wear whatever is nechbad, it's dignified in that circumstance, wherever they're holding. The idea is not necessarily a clothing idea. It's a mindset idea. The mindset is, Shivisi Hashem summit. I am living with Hashem. Therefore, the clothes that I wear, the, the way that I act, the things that I say, 
whatever I do is 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 mit, bat, bat, batamt. It's appropriate for these circumstances. According to me, how I hold myself, nechbadas is the shirish, the root of that is covered, the, the respect that I hold for myself. And really the idea of clothing we know is mabushai mechabdai, my clothing is what gives me my dignity. So whatever you hold yourself to wear, hold it to the level that you represent a dignified version of yourself. That's the short idea of nechbadas. But if you think about what nechbadas really is, it's an internalization of the fact of Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Samit. I'm in my own mind. I'm living with Hashem. And therefore, the way that I carry myself, forget what you wear, but the way that I carry myself, that internal feeling that I've worked 10 years to achieve and accomplish, that now radiates out from me. My, my royalty is because I carry myself with royalty. That's the idea. Royalty is not because you happen to be related to the king. It's you're raised as a royal. You carry yourself different. You talk different. You think different. You act different. Everything about you is different because you hold yourself to a certain standard. The result of that is whatever level of tzniyas you hold yourself to, obviously within the confines of halacha, which is das meisha, the bare minimum, and then das yehudis, which is like the expanded side of, of, of that. There's an amazing book called Reclaiming Dignity, written by one of our Berkowitz's Talmidim, which is based on this idea called Nechbados. It's an amazing book. Everybody should buy it. And it, it, I just summarized the whole book probably in, in, in 10 seconds. But that's the idea. It's, it's a very, very powerful idea. Because what it means is, is that if you think about what Sneas is, if you think about what dignity is, it's in your mind. It's how you hold yourself. It's how you carry yourself. It's on the inside, and then it radiates out. And I think that's why it's tied to this Pasuk. Marvadim Allah, in order to exude something, to do something on the outside, you first have to start with the inside. In order for your clothing to represent who you are, first your bedsheets have to. It has to first be the thing that you really hold yourself to be. Don't represent as, as a person, yeah, on the outside, I have to do this for other people. That's vanity. Vanity is when I do something specifically because I want other people. I want that recognition. And I would even argue, I want my husband, I want my wife to tell me this or that. That's why I did whatever I did. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. that's not real. You did it for the recognition? No, of course the recognition has to be there. But you did it for the recognition? No, that's not the Torah way. The Torah way is I did it because it's right. And then of course, I got the recognition. That's the level that we're striving for. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know this is deep, but yeah, we're, we're on the same page. I did it because it's right. Happens to be that my wife appreciated what I did. Not I did it for my wife to appreciate and then like, you know, I got away with it. No, that's not what it is. And I think this goes to the core of almost everything. It's a small example is if, if let's say a husband goes out and he wants to buy his wife, he, he passes a coffee shop and he says, can I get you a coffee? So if he does it because he knows his wife is going to be upset at him or he's doing it because, oh, I got some brownie points. That's not why you do it. You do it because it's right. You do it because you care the person. You care for the person. You do it because you actually thought of them. You do it because you know your spouse would appreciate it. Not because they'll appreciate you. Like, oh, wow, thank you for thinking of me. I really legitimately thought of you. And because I thought of you, that's why I offered it to you. I know we're like, we're like making a science out of this, but this is, this is a reality. I think a lot of people get married and in the beginning, they go through the motions because they were told to do something. 
But just because you were told to do something doesn't mean that that's what your spouse appreciates. I just had somebody reach out to me. They said, I have a special event coming up and I want to know what you think I should do special for my, for my spouse. I said, what do you think your spouse would, spouse would appreciate? So it was like 10 minutes of like silence. And then, and, then they, and then they wrote back like a list of things that they think that their spouse would appreciate. I said, yeah, great. Now go for it. You internalize the feeling that, that they would appreciate. Now it's time for you to act on that feeling. For me to tell you what I think your wife would appreciate or your husband would appreciate, that's me telling you. But I don't know. I'm not married to your spouse. You're married to your spouse. The internalization of the feeling then prompts the action. It, it's, it's, a, it's a mind, sh- it's, a, it's a shift. It's not how most people act. It's I really, truly feel this. And then because of that, this is the result of this. I once, I, I've mentioned this, I, I, I had a meeting with Rivali Ashev and I asked certain shilas and I had another time where I was able to send them certain shilas. And one of the things that we touched on in, in one of those correspondences back and forth was this idea of nechbadas. And basically the question was, is, is this true? Is this true? Is there such a concept that a person is not supposed to do something that's beneath their level of dignity? Because if you think about it, it's not just clothing. It's a mindset. It's an action. It's your food. It's your clothes. It's, it's, it's everything. It's your whole life. It's how you carry yourself. It's if you're on vacation, do you, do you walk around like in, in a tuxedo and a hat and jacket on a beach? Or right? do you walk into 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 let's say you go to Florida, right? If you walk into like a, uh, a restaurant, you walk in with flip-flops and sandals because, you know, and shorts because you're on vacation. Like every year of your life, you ask yourself, you question yourself, like, who am I? What do I represent? What do I stand for? So that's the idea of Nechmaz. I asked, basically, I asked Rivali Yashiv about this idea. And the answer I got back was, not only is a person not supposed to do something that's beneath them, they're not supposed to say something that's beneath them. And I'm not talking about something that's usher. I'm not talking about Lashon Hara or any. I'm not supposed to say something that's beneath their level that they hold themselves to do. And I feel it's a trachten, even to think something that's beneath you. That's the idea of Nechbadas. To think something that's beneath you. Forget what's usher to think. To think something. That's, that's the drive of Nechbadas. This is not something you accomplish in, in two seconds. It's something that you really have to internalize. I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on my level of who I am, of who I carry myself to be. I look in the mirror and I see royalty. What does that mean for me? How do I now have to carry myself? How do I actually have to behave now? How do I actually, like, what things do I watch or not watch? Or what type of phone or what type of car? What does my house look like? What paintings are on my wall? Goes to literally every part of your life that you never even thought of before because you just do it. This is like, stop, think about it, Make it real, and then the result will be everything around you because it's real. It's a real part of who you are. I remember when I was I was in elementary school, one of my rebellion had a he had a station wagon, and for those of you who were born after like nineteen, I don't know when, like you probably don't even know what a station wagon is, but it was like it was like a humongous car that was like considered like the yeshivish car. Okay, like they had like. The front row didn't even have, like, you could fit, like, three people in the front row. And then the second row, and it was, it was like, the days before, like, seatbelts type of thing, okay? And then, like, the back of it, either you could, like, fold it all down, and, like, it was, like, you were able to put things in the back. Or you, you were able to put the seats in a certain way that you could actually be facing out the back. So many a childhood, including mine, were, were, were driving on the road where you were facing 
the back. You didn't even know where you were. You were just facing the highway going backwards. Okay. So a station wagon was like the ultimate yeshivish car. This Rebbe had a station wagon. And I remember everyone was like saying, oh, Rebbe, you have a station wagon, blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, it's, you know, like very nice. They were talking about it. They were joking about it. And then one day everyone was standing in front of the building and the Rebbe's station wagon was, was right there. And somebody said like, oh, Rebbe, is that your station wagon? Is that your car? So he said, yeah. And they said, can we check out your car? And he said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And they walked over, all of us, we walked over and we noticed, we were like saying to each other, like, you know, it's very interesting. Like, this is like an immaculate station wagon. Like it's, it's, it's like shined. It's like, it looks like he takes it to like, a, like, you know, body work on the station wagon. Like you look inside, it's like immaculate. It has like the little, you know, mint freshener in the front. It's like amazing. Like this is like the nicest station wagon in Brooklyn. So when we got back to class, somebody raised his hand and said, Rebbe, I have a question. He said, what's your question? He said, could you talk to us about your station wagon? We've never seen such a nice station wagon in our lives. <laughs> Most people have station wagons. It's like a yeshivish car. It's like, it's beat up. It's all dented. These things are like a tank. You could drive it through a wall. Like your station wagon, it looks like you sit all Sunday and like you're polishing your station wagon. So I remember he said, he said, listen, I'm a Rebbe. I don't have a lot of money. So I could afford a station wagon. That's my car. He said, but in every area of your life, wherever you're going to be, whatever you're doing, you do it with a certain level of, of, of class, of dignity. It doesn't, just because I have a car that's not expensive doesn't mean it has to be like a clunky car that's, you know, screaming like I have no money and, and, and my, you know, I don't have an oil change and I'm running out of gas on the side of the, top, of the highway and all my hubcaps are different and my car is like wobbling down the street. I can still carry myself to the highest level that I'm able to afford. He said, so yes, I'm very mockbed. You don't just eat and throw food in my car. I make sure that it's very, very clean. I make sure the outside is clean. I take it for car washes. He said, my, my maintenance on my car, I'm very mockbed that I represent the, the Rebbe community when I'm driving down the street and people should see this is a dignified man who's doing the most with what he has. I'm, that left an impression on me for 30 years. This Rebbe's station wagon. And sometimes you see somebody who has a $100,000 car and you open the door and like tons of wrappers and garbage just comes flying out. Oh, I have a $100,000 car. You do, but you, your, your level of nechbados is lower. It's amazing. Your level of nechbados is lower in your $100,000 car than in this Rebbe who has his $5,000 car because he holds himself to a certain standard. His clothing doesn't have to be custom clothing to be nice and fitted Hold yourself to royalty because you are royalty. I remember seeing once Rav Liashev was by a wedding. I'll just end with end this idea with this. Rav Liashev was once at a wedding and there was a reporter there from one of these like secular newspapers. And when he saw Rav Liashev came in, he wrote that he just sat on the side and just watched Rav Liashev, just watched him. And he wrote a whole column talking about how he was nishtaimim. He was blown away by how focused Rivaliashev was at what he looked at. Rivaliashev wasn't sitting on the women's side of the, the mechitza and people coming over for brachas. He was sitting on the men's side, on the dais. But even as he was sitting on the dais, his control over his eyes, but it wasn't his eyes, it was his mind. Who am I talking to? What am I saying? What is the purpose of this moment in time that was so apparent? And this guy wrote, I'm, I'm blown away. I don't like the Haredim and I don't stand for the Haredim and I'm not a Shemr Terimitzis. But for a person to have such control over themselves, 
wow. And I was just absolutely blown away by that. That's the idea of Nechbabis. It's so real that it now, that, that's what you see. You, what you see was what you get. It's real. It's authentic. The outside and the inside, it's all the same thing. Which brings us to the third idea. The third idea is really the history behind the entire concept of Eishas Chayel. And that is, the Medrash says that who is the Eishas Chayel in this particular story? It is none other than Bathsheba. Who is Bathsheba? Bathsheba was Shlomo Melech's mother. So for those of you who don't know the story, this story is actually what prompted the writing of Eishas Chayel. So who wrote Eishas Chayel? It's in Sefer Mishlei. So we all think that it was written by Shlomo Melech. Now, in a way, it was written by him, but there's a story behind the story of Eishas Chayel. And the story goes as follows, is that the Beis HaMiklash was finally built. David HaMelech, as we all know, everyone was saying, when is he going to die? So we could finally, finally, finally have the Beis HaMiklash. We could bring Karbanas. And Hashem said, no, David HaMelech is more chaviv to me. His learning and his tzidkis is better to me than all the Karbanas that they're going to bring. Finally, David HaMelech was nifter at 70 years old. Not finally, but he was nifter. Klai Yisrael was like so excited. We're finally going to have the Beis HaMiklash. It's going to come to fruition. And they set a date, and they said, this date is going to be the date that the Beis HaMikdash is going to be inaugurated. And we're going to start off bright and early in the morning with the carbon Tamid Shoshachar. Now, the night before, Shlomo Melech got married to a woman named Basia Bas Pare. Probably a different one than the story that you're familiar with, but that was her name, okay? So Pare was like a position, and Basia was a common name. That was her name. He married Basia Bas Pare. And this woman was from royalty, and they went ahead and they threw a party that the Medrash says was such a fantastic party. It was such a big party. It was so ostentatious that Hashem, that entire night, was thinking, I'm going to destroy Yerushalayim because you're making a mockery that your wedding that you prepared for is so grand, and the Beis HaMikdash, which is opening tomorrow, there's no way that that can compete with this Simcha. And ultimately, Hashem said, I'm not going to destroy Yerushalayim, but there was a Havamina that Yerushalayim should be destroyed even before the first Beis HaMikdash was built based on this. Uh, that night, this woman, and talks about a lot of things that she did. She was talking to him about Avaydah Zara, and she was telling him this is how the bands used to play in front of Avaydah Zara. She was clearly not a very good influence on him. The next morning, when he was supposed to get up very early, she had sewn a thick fabric, which was dark, and she put these gemstones all around the fabric that mimic the way that the stars align in the sky. And she put it all around his bed. And he woke up in the morning. He looks around and he sees, oh, it's still dark. He went back to sleep. And he overslept on the day that Klai Yisrael was all waiting. Hundreds of thousands, millions of people were waiting by the base of Megdash. Carbon Tamet Shachar is supposed to be brought. We're kicking off this, the, the celebration. The king is not here. And everyone starts talking and everyone starts tumbling. And he's sleeping because his wife tricked him into sleeping late. They all ran to Basheva. And Basheva was his mother. And they said, where's the king? She said, I don't know. She ran to the palace and she woke him up. And when she woke him up, she said to him, <clears throat> my dear son, yeah? And she told him a bunch of things which you'd probably never heard of, which I'll tell you in a second. And then she said to him, how do you find an Eishas Chayel? It's not so easy. You think you just find an Eishas a good wife? No, it's not so easy, right? Let me tell you what she does. Her husband can trust her that she's going to do the right things and not stab him in the back, right? And you'll never lose out, right? And she goes through giving him musr, that was the story of Eishas Chayel. So all of this came about because of 
Batshava, who the Medrash says she was royalty. And what were what were her clothing made out of? Sheish v'argaman, levusha. So Sheish v'argaman levusha, the royalty was his mother who was the queen. And the queen mother came to him in the morning and she said to him a bunch of things. Now, when, when I was a kid, my father, is he, when he was younger, he memorized Mishlei and the family is very into Mishlei. So my father used to start saying the words of Eishas Chayel from the beginning of the parak. And the words say as follows. It says, These are words to Lemuel HaMelech, the king, and it talks, talks about why he was considered Lemuel, which was like a derogatory term. Right? This is the Musr that his mother gave him. And then it says, Mabri Umabarbitni. What became of you, my son? Mabarbitni, like the one that I gave birth to. Umabarnidare, and the one that I made promises about. So the first 10 psukim, she goes on and on and on, chastising him. And then it starts with Asha's file. So on this pasuk over here of Mabri Umabarbitni, what happened to you, my son? The one that I gave birth to and the one that I made Nidaram about. What does that mean? I made Nidaram about you. So she told him, as part of her musr, she said to him, the Medrash says, she said, you know, David HaMelech, your father, had many wives. And each one of those wives wanted their son to grow up to become the king. So they all would make Nidaram and Nidavas. They would like go crazy. They would say like, Hashem, I promise, you know, I'm davening, I'm begging you, I'm beseeching you that my son should be the king. He should be fit for Malchus. All the other wives, that was what they used to daven for. And that's what they used to make like Nidaram. Like they would promise Hashem, like, I'll do anything. Make sure that my son becomes the king. She said, except for me. I, that was not my tefillah for you. My tefillah for you was that you're going to become a Tamar Chacham, a Yari Shemayim. You're going to be somebody who, who has, you know, Ma'urav It's like, I daven for you. I daven that you're going to have the inner workings of, 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 of a good person. If you become a Rebbe, a Rosh Hashiva, Whatever you become, that's what you should become. I didn't focus on the fact that you should become a king. Hashem saw all my tefillahs became true, that you have the innate ability to have hold yourself to a certain amount of royalty, and Hashem therefore made you into the king. But I never davened for the outcome of kingship. What did she say? She said a very, a very specific thing. She said, I didn't daven for the chitzainius of kingship. I davened for the panemius of kingship. And because of that, that's why you became the king. That was what she told him within her musr. So then she goes on and on and on. And then she says, So this is what struck me. Is that, and I would say to you, what is musr? Like, how do you define musr? I think most people would say musr, I don't know, it's like rebuke. Maybe you say like somebody yelling at you, right? Chastising you. I don't think that's what it is. I think that right over here is where is where Bacheva explains to David Amalek something that's so fundamental that I think as, as, as spouses, I think as parents, I, and as mechanchem, whatever position we hold in, in life, I think that this, this goes to the, the core of exactly what we're trying to convey. What is Musr? Musr is not rebuke. Musr is where you yourself hold yourself to a certain value and you convey to your spouse the value system that you hold. Give it to your spouse, to your children. You convey a value system that starts with you. It's internal. You've worked this through in your mind, and then you live this way, and then you turn to your child and you say, Wow, Mabri, like, how did this possibly become of you, Tzadik? 
doesn't make any sense. Your father was the Gadol Adar, Davin Amelach. My whole life was filled with tefillah for you, for the essence of who you are. Wow, you've, you've deviated from that value system. Can't believe it. And by the way, you want to know what that value system is? This is exactly what that value system is. You reiterate over and over and over, over through Remez, through Mashal, to explain to your significant other, this is what we stand for. This is who we are. That was exactly what Bacheva did so successfully. And that's why I think this Pasuk is so beautiful, is that she went ahead and she said, First, it starts with me. Who am I? Am I real? And then, that realness becomes who, who I am. That's the outside. That's what you see everywhere. And by the way, David Amala, he lived by this as well. I was his wife. These were things that we discussed. These were conversations deep into the wee hours of the morning. That was our tefillah that made you. And now you're deviating from this. Oy, I think you need to reassess your life just a little bit. That was the Musr. It's a beautiful concept of Musr. Musr is not rebuke. Musr is a conveyance of a deep value. And then that value should become shared. And it has to be given over in a way that is shared, that it's respected, that it's accepted. That is what Musr really truly is. There's an amazing story that I saw. And, and I think this highlights, you know, maybe what a lot of people struggle with, I'll call this within like our, our system. The story, it's brought down in, in Rav David Feinstein's biography. I, I, I always say, I think everybody should buy this book. It's just, it's just a masterclass in Anivas. It's just an incredible, incredible book. The story goes that somebody came to Rav David Feinstein and they said they were upset because there was somebody who was making a concert and he said to Rav David, you know, the concert was mixed and I think we should like take like a heavy stand on this. And David said, no, I'm familiar with that concert. It was not mixed. The concert was not mixed. It was, it was men and it was women. So the person showed Rav David like a clip on his phone that as people coming out of the venue, they were on the street and there was men and there was women, like families that were like getting together to go home together in the car. So he said, look, it's mixed. They came out of the concert and it was mixed. So Rav David said, like, one second, one second. I, I don't understand something. The, the concert itself was not mixed, correct? Right. So, so, so you want all the streets around the whole venue to be segregated? Like you want men on one side and women on the other side? Okay, that's very nice for you. You have a chumrah. You want to stand on the other side of the street from your wife and your daughters. Okay, good for you. Fine. You're, you're, you're firmer than Hashem. That, that's fine. No problem. I understand. But like they're going to make the guy who ran the concert and put in the effort, you're going to make his life more difficult? That's just vicious. That's just wrong. A lot of times in our lives, we think that it's it's easiest to just be machmer in everybody. I'll just be frummer than everybody else. And then, ha, that's me. No, no, no. That's not called atzlacha. It's very, very easy to be machmer. The Sharmatian Ba'alacha in, in his Akdama on, 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 on Halacha, he, he writes, the, the job of a Rav is to be, is to be mater is to know the halacha that you're able to be mater. You want to be machmer? I'll, I'll give you a one-page safer. It just says aser. It's the easiest, it's easiest safer in the world to write. The, the chachma of a rav is to know that you could be makal, to know when to be makal. I was once talking to a certain person, you know, who was passing a certain shayla, and, and to me it was, it was clear that whatever it was, was, was okay. 
And this person kept saying, but Efshim McKenzogan and Efshim McKenzogan, like they kept saying over, like, but, but maybe we could be Machmer, maybe we could be Machmer. I said, like, I'm, I, I can't continue this conversation. If Efshim McKenzogan Le'iser, then you don't need any Seichel. Of course, you could always say Efshim McKenzogan to be Aser. Everything could be Aser. Of course, everything could be Aser. Why not? Just Aser it. The Kayach of, of Hetera is, is Adif, is, is much stronger to be Mat or something. You have to know what you're talking about in order to be Mat or something. The value system that we have in our lives, the things that we stand for, the things that we fill our families with, those value systems, it's so easy to just take one approach where you just say everything's usher. But to stop and to think and to process each and every value and make those values a part of your family is musr. You're giving over something to your children that they may not even realize. My wife just reminded this to me. It, it was, I didn't even think about this, but it was, it was, it was cute. We were sitting by, by a Suda and we were talking about what we should do Chalamite. So someone brought up that we should go to Eretz Yisrael for three days Chalamite. Okay. So immediately my brain started just like running numbers, even though you're not supposed to on Shabbos or Yante. But my brain was just like, whoa, that sounds like super expensive, right? Like you're talking about X amount of people, flights, busy time, hotel, this, blah, blah, blah. so I'm like, oh, hold on. What's going on here? Like this is like 72 hours, like $25,000. It doesn't, doesn't compute in my brain. So my wife and I, we turned to our, to our kids and we said, guys, let's talk about the value of money, right? Not here to give you like a schmooze, but like, if you worked hard for money, like how much money would you spend on a three-day vacation, on a three-day uplifting vacation, right? You're going you, to go to our straw. And it was a conversation that lasted maybe like an hour, hour and a half. And we were going through like all the stuff. And at that end, my kid go like, oh, I, it's not could I. We understand. Like we don't just blow money on things. No, I didn't say to my children, we don't blow money on things. It came out from the conversation that they were like, oh, we now understand a little bit more of the chashivas of money. And how you spend it and when you spend it and what type of vacation. Just the whole, the whole conversation was just, it, it was a dialogue. To me, it's a transmittal of a value. The value of money, the value of time, the value of family, the value of spirituality, the value of taking care of yourself physically, the value of spending time with your children, the value of spending time with each other, the value of nechbadas of how you hold yourself. These are values that most people go through their entire life and never have one conversation with their spouse about. The idea of this pasuk is marvadim asasallah. You first have to make it for yourself that it's real. And then levusha, it becomes like the clothing that you walk around in. Everybody sees that value. It's just radiating out everywhere. And then it becomes something that your family just sees. You don't have to yell and scream and give them rebuke. You just say to them like, don't you know who we are? We're royalty. We carry ourselves as royalty. So, like, you're the prince. Like, let's have this conversation. Where, where are we going over here? There's not a lot of yelling and screaming. It's very calm. It's giving over a conveyance of a value system. And when that happens, it usually is acceptable because the children know that it's real. Your husband and your wife, they know that it's real. They go, oh, yeah, yeah, this is real by you. And because it's real, they usually share in that value as well. So it's a, it's a deep idea. It's not something that somebody can just tackle in two seconds. But if a person does this, we're getting towards the latter half of Aisha's Chayel, then at this point already, since we've already conquered 12 different levels of our marriage, at this point already, we're starting to ele- like levitate above our chairs 
and and you know we're, we're able to accomplish a lot more than we thought we were able to accomplish in the past. This idea of nechbadus is a conversation between a husband and a wife who says, "Who are we? What do we stand for? And what is real by us?" And when they're able to like have that dialogue, you're able to elevate your entire family. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.